the talk tonight is about how wonderful it is to be disconnected and how awful it is to be connected. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> how wonderful it is to be connected with how things are <laughs> and how. <laughs> Awful it is to be. <laughs> uh, disconnected. Great. <laughs> I hope you've experienced some ambivalence about the situation. <laughs> That's what the talk is about. Our ambivalence about uh, being really connected with how things are. And why? There was a great teacher um, named Maya Baba uh, that um, a lot of my friends in college were connected with. And I remember um, something he said that deeply affected me, which was um, when two people are angry at each other, they tend to yell. You know, they speak loudly because when we're angry, we're so separate that we have to yell to, to sort of feel like we're making the connection, right? And he said that when two people are in love, they whisper or they don't need any words at all. You know, and why? Because there's no sense of separation or very little. If we listen to our own minds with ourself and ourself, you know, sometimes we're screaming or yelling at, at ourselves because we feel so separate from ourselves. And other times that um, wordless abiding happens and we understand why metta can be very quiet. No, there's no need for words because we feel so connected. There's a teacher from India named Srinazargadatta Maharaj that um, there's a book called I Am That, uh, discussions with him. And he said that love is to see myself in everybody and everybody in myself most certainly is love. I think that's so clear. To see myself in everybody and everybody in myself most certainly is love. There's a a man that I've met in Thailand that uh, was a generation 88 from Burma, meaning that he was a student in Burma during the um, for <laughs> the first uh, democracy uprising. And he was um, either going to be shot or he had to escape. And he's been working in Thailand ever since, you know, once he lived in refugee camps for some years working uh, for his people. And he became more uh, noticeable 
when the tsunami happened and a lot of the Burmese migrant workers, uh, the illegal migrant workers, weren't given any aid in Thailand because um, the Thai government didn't want to give the Burmese illegal migrants aid. So he's, um, he works in so many areas. I, I just respect him so much as somebody who's really uh, expressing love in this way of really serving his people. And recently, a friend of mine from Honolulu, originally from Brazil, um, she decided to start a nonprofit where she's two things, mostly trying to get disabled orphans placed in homes, which is extremely difficult. But also, to if she can't get the disabled orphans uh, placed, that she tries to create services for them in um, difficult areas of the world where this is, it's not even a concept really to help disabled orphans. Um, so I, this year, uh, Steve Smith and I connected her. She came to this lake retreat we teach in Thailand with him. And we drove south after the retreat, and um, he's very busy, so it was like a lot of work to kind of connect them, and then we had to leave. Um, so she told me later that, I mean, I, I just want to say again, this man is busy. He's, he's working now with a lot of human tra trafficking and child sex slavery, and I mean, he's just like on it. He's one of my heroes this uh, lifetime. So she was placed in this one um, little kuti, and he was nearby. And she, it was late at night, and she realized she had to ask him a question about the next morning. So she went over to where he lives and uh, knocked on the door. And he opened the door, and she saw that he had nine disabled orphans living with him since we called him a couple months ago. <laughs> to help start doing something in southern Thailand. And she couldn't even believe it. I mean, can you imagine? Just like we called him, we wanted to help start some services, and he already has nine disabled orphans living with him. And that's just the type of person he is. It's like to see myself in everybody and everybody in myself. And I'm mentioning this because it's just, it's just one way in this world to express love. There are beings in Burma that live in a cave their whole life. And that's another way to express love. It's like that we have to listen to ourselves and really, you know, just keep listening and seeing where this expression of care can manifest the best in our lifetime. But for sure, as we start to try to explore what the word love means, you know, one thing that is a given is that our hearts are indescribable and unfathomable. That, that really the heart and mind, it's like it contains all of the universe. 
that love is a container for the emptiness of this universe. So that when we, when we say something like, may my heart abide in loving kindness, um, and we incline the attention toward that, it really is helpful to understand that it's always there. That even though we don't access it in every moment, clearly, that there is a sense that um, love tells me I'm everything. So part of the practice is really being able to just listen, to just receive, to be able to send. And one aspect of this uh, practice is really to even understand what, as I said the first night and second night, what is attention? And what does it mean for the attention to connect to anything? That, like, that is an aspect of concentration where we're not, the attention isn't just lost in believing our thoughts, but really there is some focus. It can be a wide, open focus. It can be a very singular, precise, narrow focus. It doesn't matter. But there is some sense of um, attention. So one way that um, concentration is described is uh, that it includes what is called five jhanic factors, uh, meaning that the attention is starting to get more and more present and more and more deeply immersed in what's happening. Um, So the first aspect of uh, a concentration factor, in other words, would be the ability to connect the attention with something. And the second aspect of this that's so important is to sustain it. So technically it's, it's called vitaka, vichara in Pali. There are a lot of different translations, but basically it means the ability to, <laughs> sometimes it's called aiming, you know, it's like, yoo-hoo, Michelle, yoo-hoo, you know, whoever, come back, hello. You know, that's aiming, connecting, and then sustaining it with something. It can be sustaining the attention with a sound. It can be sustaining the attention with knee pain. It can mean sustaining the attention with loneliness. Certainly the ability to sustain the attention through the beginning, middle, end of a step or beginning, middle, end of a breath usually helps us learn how to sustain the attention with the beginning, middle, end of anger beginning, middle, end of a life. So these, these two concentration factors are emphasized again and again and again and again and again in any kind of practice because it's like the, it's the foundation for actually arriving here. When we can sustain the attention for some time, it's called like a deeper immersion. So like in metta practice, that would mean that there's a deeper immersion in our connection with ourself and ourself, or a deeper immersion with our connection with ourself and benefactor, sound of the bus, back to wherever we are. It's like it can be inclusive, this, con- this kind of concentration. Even when we're immersed, it's like the attention can get more inclusive of what's happening. So the third 
concentration factor is called um, piti or joyful interest. And you might have experienced this. It could be you have joyful interest again with it. In this practice, it's great. It could be with um, sadness. It could be with uh, those wonderful peonies on the edge of the walkway where you start to see that one of them is starting to, one petal, one petal is starting to open. You could sustain your attention with that peony flower for this retreat, and it could be a perfect practice. Because it's like the idea is that you connect and sustain over time. You can't force any of these particularly joyful interests Um, you can't force it. It just happens. You can't command it. Okay, now it's time for some joyful interest with the peony. And you walk by and it's like, "Eh." (laughs) it's just, you can't, it just doesn't happen. You can have the most beautiful moonlight and if you're not in the mood, it's just not going to happen. Because we're not connected. So it's said that if you can sustain the joyful interest, now this is not like you're doing it all day, and this is important. This can be a few seconds. So it's, it's like we get these ideas about this stuff that it has to be really long, but it's usually um, pretty short. A few seconds, peak experience, gone, but we've had a glimpse. Okay, the next concentration factor is called um, sukha, or happiness. And you'll feel like a subject and object has disappeared. There's no giver and receiver. It's like there's nothing between our attention and anything. So we're touched directly by whatever's happening. There's nothing in between. So there's a kind of sweet happiness to that quality of the experience. We feel like we're closer to the truth because we're closer to how things are. The last uh, concentration factor is called ikagata, or tranquility. And it it will feel like the attention is um, perfectly still. There's a stillness, even if things are moving, which life is moving, but there's a stillness within the movement. It's a paradox. In metta practice, there isn't necessarily an attention that's always with the movement. It's like we're getting more and more immersed in the loving kindness or, or just the connection with ourself. It doesn't have to feel like we're experiencing loving kindness. So this last, if this, say for example, these other jhanic factors kind of happen in a flash and we're just feeling quiet, that means that 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 concentration factor of ikagata or tranquility is strong. It's just quiet. You won't feel any metta there. So my experience with um, the two different methods of doing the metta practice where there's um, an encouragement with the calling up the loving-kindness, inclining your attention toward it, connecting with the feeling essence, 
connecting with your body or not. But that trusting in the kind of wordless abiding and trusting that the field of metta intelligence is there, um, sometimes it just gets quiet really quickly. And sometimes you don't even know it's happening. At other times, we need the, um, the anchoring with the phrases. It's like an anchor. It helps aim, sustain, or connect, um, sustain the attention. It's, it's, it can be more tangible. Um, and again, it's like we get in touch with the felt sense of ourself, another, a lake, a tree, a stuffed animal. Um, and both methods are meant to lead to a deep, quiet abiding. So the methods go to the same place. The methods all have the same concentration factors. They all have the aiming, sustaining, or connecting, sustaining, PT, joyful interest, happiness, and quiet. And they're both helpful, both methods. That's why they're both here, available for us, you know, that's why they both developed, because they're both useful. So if we get this little glimpse, maybe it's a flash, maybe it's a kaleidoscopic feeling of like, whoa, what was that? It was so quick. I think that was meta. <laughs> you know, it's, a, or it's just like, oh, there was like this, it's called access concentration. There was a sense of really connecting. Um, that purity, that unconditional love, um, will be like taking a warm, soapy water and taking a dirty cloth and washing the dirty cloth in the warm, soapy water. So it's like we're, we wash our cars, we wash our bodies, we wash our houses, we like clean, 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 clean. But we don't have a concept necessarily like cleaning our heart and mind in our culture. Everything else is clean. But... <laughs> so we wonder why our culture is so distracted and kind of reactive and kind of stressed. It's because it ain't, it's ain't clean. Bottom line. So the practice is one of really having goals of like touching into this purity and, and learning to access it. And it also has the goal of purification, of really seeing everything that isn't metta. By now you've seen everything that isn't metta. <coughs> you know, it's like, whoa, did I sign up for this? You know, it's, it's hard, that part. That's why I was joking. It's like, great to be connected, but who wants the purification? Nobody's going to sign up for that. Unless you start realizing that it is the path. It's how you get to know what unconditional love is by, by seeing what conditional love is. 
so to um, ground this in a little bit more of the um, insight practice, it's like, mm, <laughs> I have too much to say. Um, A human being basically is incredibly vulnerable. If you just look at our, our eye door, there's a hole here, black hole. You know, that seeing isn't just like about what's happening right at the eye door. It's like it, we're taking in all this light and dark and color and form through this hole. That's how vulnerable we are. We're not separate. And then you look at the body. Our bodies are just like one big, (laughs) whoa, we're just being touched by the whole universe moment by moment. You know, it's like, whoa, vulnerable. Not in a a weak, disgusting way. It's just like this is just the human predicament. We take birth like this. You know, it's like smell. You know, it's like, it's like, if you really have a good nose, it's just intense, just the, the range of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You know, there was this place where I've been teaching up in British Columbia, and they have this compost heap. And my family, we have this gag reflex that nobody likes to show, you know. And every day I walk by this compost heap, and I'm like, Ugh! you know, and it's like, you know, and it's just like, Michelle, it's just a compost heap. And I'd feel myself trying to get onto the opposite side of the road. You know, but it's really smelly, you know. And there's all these beautiful tulips, <laughs> you know, great <coughs> lilies of the valley. But, you know, it's like there's this range of pleasant, unpleasant. It's like, it's these, <laughs> it's not like there's anything between us and this stuff. It's just this misperception. Tastes wild, wildly alive. You know, and so much of, like, our life revolves around you know, pleasant sensations on the tongue. Or unpleasant, if you're a bad cook. (laughs) 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 And then, you know, and, and that's all considered easy, folks. All that is in the realm of physical sensations. Then you get thoughts, emotions. You know, it's like, the mind thinks, and we tend to relate to thinking like something we should be able to stop, we should be able to control. Do we cut off our ear to like be liberated? Do we try to stop thinking? Yes. Do we try to stop hearing? No. So like a huge step for me was like starting to get that (laughs) I needed to accept that as a human being, thinking is happening. And in fact, it's another one of these feelings of like a hole. It's like this, the thoughts are just, you know, rolling along. That's what it does. It's like that's a given. The human being thinks it's like an organ. And then emotion is some, like the most crazy part of it all. It's like, it's like this mix of memory and thought and physical sensations. It's usually the last thing we instruct, even though it's often the most, (laughs) gets us in the most trouble. 
because we don't have a relationship with emotion. Do we have a relationship with anger? Do we go, oh boy, I'm here at this retreat, meta retreat. Okay, so I can't wait to get on this retreat so I can get a better relationship and friendship with anger. Did you come like that? (laughs) But that's what it's about. Did I, oh, you come to this retreat to really get a closer look at attached love. Neediness, our favorite. Dependency, neediness. That's, that's probably on the high list of pe- what you came here to really make friends with. <laughs> and not ever have the idea that you need to get rid of it. But that it's about skill. It's about skill and how to learn how to be a human being, a true human being. Kindness, a kind relationship of wisdom and loving kindness with everything that appears. So the possibility of having a loving kindness practice where everything that appears, that you're holding it with loving kindness, you're developing this relationship of loving kindness with everything that appears, that creates safety. No need to get anything, no need to get rid of anything, and that safety allows you to really let things go. In fact, it's a voluntary renunciation. We don't have to let anything go because if you hold things with loving kindness, you have a genuine connection. And so there's an interest in what it really is that's appearing. It's not control. So what we call a separate self, an I or me or mine, are just these moments where we actually believe we can control. It's really funny. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> that was Katherine Hepburn. <laughs> I don't know if you know that movie, The Philadelphia Story. But man, when I heard her laughing that, I wanted to be that. Um, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, it's really funny. But that's all a separate self is that when something's pleasant and it starts to disappear, we want to control it. And when something unpleasant is there, we get afraid, we pull away from it, or we we push it away. That's the, it's like the belief, the unexamined belief that we can actually control so much more than we actually can. Of course we want to control. And this is what's so important. It's like, of course we're thinking. Human beings, like, we're amazing. We have this sophisticated, amazing body and mind and heart. And most of the time in practice, we're trying to get rid of it. And yet it's just, it's, it, the, the whole sophisticated system is trying to take care of us. It's trying to help us. Our thoughts are actually trying to help us. If you listen to them like Maya Baba's talking about, if you're really listening as like you're listening to your system, you're not listening to every thought like you're believing it. It's much more that you understand that the thoughts are really just trying to help you and that you need to listen more wisely or with loving kindness, with care. 
So yes, the first noble truth that the Buddha taught is dukkha, that we live in this vulnerable, uncertain world because of the six sense doors. It's vulnerable, but we all share it. And it, it means that it's uncontrollable because it's changing, it's uncertain. And yet, if we're connected to that truth, we're fine. It's whenever we disconnect from dukkha that we're not okay. When we have aversion to dukkha, we're not okay. When we really can connect with vulnerability, we're fine. But we're ambivalent about this, (laughs) to say the least, because we have aversion to the fact that it is uncertain. So we have to let ourselves say, of course I want to control it. Of course it's difficult to sustain the attention. It's okay. Of course thinking is happening. Uh, Somebody just sent me this. um, It's not a cartoon. But it's some kind of interview. Um, The question to Robert Eager, the CEO of Disney, in the Times. The question is, what are some things you do to manage your time effectively? I get up at 4.30 every morning. I like the quiet time. It's a time I can recharge my batteries a bit. I exercise, and I clear my head, and I catch up on the world. I read papers, I look at email, I surf the web. I watch a little TV all at the same time. (laughs) I call it my quiet time. That's so great. (laughs) I I can't even finish the sentence. I'll try to. I look at email. I surf the web. I watch a little TV all at the same time. I call it my quiet time, but I'm already multitasking. (laughs) I love listening to music, so I'll do that in the morning, too, when I'm exercising and watching the news. That's my quiet time. We're laughing because that is our quiet time. (laughs) I mean, you know, that's how nuts we are. You know, it's like that's when we're relaxing. And you come on a retreat and you wonder why it's difficult. We're asking you to stay with a benefactor all day. (laughs) And, you know, our quiet time is doing all this. It's challenging to get this quiet. We get bored because we're used to all that input, you know, and it's like, It's like we're coming off all that overstimulation. And we we go, oh, I wonder why I'm so tired. You know, I wonder why I can't sustain the attention with this benefactor. So purification, it's like my first time when I did this practice, and I was trying to do this dear friend, and I was 
placing her image at the end of this path, and I was walking toward her, and it was like, you know, may, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, turn around, walk toward her, you know, and then all of a sudden I was like, I don't really like you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was horrifying, you know, and it's like, oh, the frustration, the frustration that I'd been repressing, and the sadness and the impatience, and it's like, you know, metta brings up the challenging aspects of relationships that we didn't even know were there. It was humbling. And I started to have to see that the frustration and the sadness and the anger are because I care. And the only way that we can get ourselves back to metta land is to understand that the emotions are a sign that we really care but that, the, that, that it's coming from a place of control. You know, so the motivation in, is care, you know. Che Guevara, I don't think I have to explain who he was, the great revolutionary. He said, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, the true revolutionary is motivated by feelings of love. Why do we want to change things? You know, it's like in my college years, you know, racism, the environment, et cetera, et cetera, I was so angry. I nearly self-destructed. You know, and it's like I come up against that over and over again in my life. I don't think it's an afflictive emotion. It's a sign that we want things to change, that we care. Anger is an emotion, though, that if we don't listen to it carefully, <coughs> it's, it's a control rather than a, a learning that something doesn't feel right and we want to put our energy into making change that's effective. So instead of saying, oh, I want to get rid of this afflictive emotion, it needs to be, I wonder why I'm feeling this. Of course. Of course I'm angry about this. How is the best way to relate to this? And we often don't want to take responsibility for feeling the unpleasantness of it. In my early years of practice, my most important teaching was when I would hear the coyotes howling here. And it was like that primal sound of just, I think of it as the sound of incarnation itself, like of birth itself, of our human predicament itself. Just the heart hurting, because ouch, ouch, ouch. Or oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. It's like I want this wanting, 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 not wanting, not wanting, not wanting. Of course that range of pleasure and pain, the range of joy and sorrow, and where to take action and where not. And, you know, it's like it <laughs> the neediness, the fear of abandonment, the fear of judgment. There's an older man in, on the big island uh, that lives near our land um, there that kind of a longer story, but um, there was a very difficult person in the community that um, a lot of people 
have had a hard time with. And I, I, there were a bunch of people talking about him with a lot of aversion and being annoyed and irritated. And um, he just took me quietly aside and he just said, I wonder why he's like that. No need for an answer. It has nothing to do with an answer. It's that pure interest. I wonder why I'm like this. <laughs> I wonder why you're like this. And it's like, it's just that interest that makes for the possibility for connection. As we all know, the mindfulness being the intention to understand rather than to judge our experience. We get to see how easy it is to judge. We're experts at it. We have the PhD and beyond. You know, it's like we've mastered it and we're so good at analyzing and you know, trying to figure things out. And it's not to it's not to knock that. It's a gift of humans to have that ability. And we tend to be quite out of balance with it. this. It's like this ability to make space, to pause, and to just say, I wonder, rather than to do the knee-jerk reaction that causes so much suffering. A couple of years ago, I had this really, one of the most challenging, difficult experiences for quite a while. Um, and when I went back to this place, as I was getting closer to this place, um, all of a sudden I noticed that my system went numb. Like really numb. For three weeks. It was like watching it happen. And it was the first time I realized that numbness is an emotion. And I secretly suspected it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, like, I, it sort of was a pet peeve my whole life because I, I never had the luxury. Like, you know, some people are really good at it, you know. But I sort of been more like, a, you know, it's like I'm like a cartoon, even in kindergarten. You know, all the other kids would, you know, there'd be somebody did something or, you know, the kids were doing something and then every, the teacher would come in and everybody would go like this and I'd be like, <coughs> and then I'd go, <coughs> and it'd be like, Michelle, in the corner. <laughs> and I'd be like, but they're all there. you're in the corner. And I'd be like, <coughs> and then I'd try to hold it in the next time and it would be like, you know, and so, like, that's my karma. <laughs> you know, so when I watched myself going numb, it was like, wow, I loved it. It was like, wow, it was great. And it, it was like I didn't feel anything for three weeks. It was fantastic. <laughs> no joy, no sorrow. It's like, that's what these guys have been doing. You know, I was really happy. Really. And then the next year I came there and it was like, oh, ouch, wow, that hurt. You know, and then the next year, oh, I could feel 
all the pain that had happened. And I, I, it was so great to see how protective it was. It wasn't even like I decided to do it. It just happened. We think that we kind of have all this choice that this person is, you know, they're not controlling this, or they, they should be doing this, and this person's too this, and she's too intense, and this person's too quiet, and we are so judgmental. And honestly, we just all develop these different defense systems so that we don't have to be vulnerable. And that prevents connection. (laughs) It prevents, you know, feeling connected to the truth of how things are. So I found in those three weeks, you know, that I had to keep learning how to be connected with being numb and that it was totally okay. If you're connected to it, it's fine. If you're connected to being angry, it's fine. If you're disconnected, it's horrible. And it's not that we say, I am numb, or I am lonely, or it's not that. It's more like there's this whole landscape that happens, this whole body, mind, heart landscape. And you do have to be very careful of listening to the thoughts about it and believing them. You know, like, I am the most worthless piece of shit, or I'm the best yogi here. Right? We have that range, and neither one of them are true. (laughs) And it's when we believe any of the thinking about these landscapes that we suffer. So I think sometimes that the deepest renunciation is when we renounce how we think things should be. You know, we renounce how we think others should be, how ourselves should be. And I think that like a lot of our doubt, like in this practice, it's so easy to doubt that we can love or that we could be loved. In the mindfulness practice, it's like each moment never quite feels good enough. In this metta practice, we ourselves don't feel good enough. We just don't measure up somehow. My mother dying when I was a kid um, really came out of her not wanting to live. And like it, you know, it's like I just had no idea she was having this extreme depression. And the, you know, she didn't have the resources to really overcome it. She just basically drank herself to death. Um, and I was so afraid of her hopelessness. Um, but I think one of the things I came into this world with was a kind of. Um, Real, a real mistrust of hopelessness and hope in a, in a really positive way. It's like I think that um, that sense of like 
projecting something better in the future um, or feeling like whatever is present that's hard is going to last forever. You know, I think I've had a kind of innate sense that neither of those are true. And I think that that is what I would call faith. So I think of faith as um, being interested enough, you know, and I would really qualify that as enough, being interested enough in things as they are so that one can have enough space to see what might be possible, you know, what connection might be possible. Even when I'm, when I'm, when I'm connected to um, hope and hopelessness, it's like that, that, there, that there, is some, there is some innate um, faith in something deeper. So a lot of people will describe faith as faith in something, but I, I don't think that's necessary. I think it's more a sense of really getting that all you have to do is, is just be with things as they are and know that that makes everything possible. And, and I think we all know that. I don't think we could be in this room <laughs> if we didn't somehow really deeply know that. I have a, um, a niece, my oldest niece is named Faith, and she was born when I was 10 years old. Um, my sister was 15, and she had her very difficult time, very poor. Um, and she had a really, if, if I wasn't around rescuing her, she had a really, really rough childhood. Um, and so now, what is she? Oh, boy, 57, 47. <laughs> She's 47. And I just saw her recently, and I've had a hard time connecting with her for some years because she's chosen some really abusive situations. Uh, and I kind of hung in there, hung in there, hung here, and there, there was this one moment a couple years ago where I was on the phone with her, and I was like, ugh. Um, I just said, I really think you need to do such and such and such and such and such and such. And it wasn't like I hadn't said it before, but there was this golden opportunity. She, she didn't do it again. Um, and I just decided to pull back and wait. Um, and without going into the details, it's like, really, really a lot of damage and damage control. And I saw her recently in Falmouth on my way to the vineyard to teach a retreat, um, and she's pulling herself out of it. Uh, and I just, I just like, I can't even tell you, I mean, just I think basically because I had so much um, connection with her when I was a kid, basically I raised her as best I could when I was a kid. Uh, and she, she walked into this restaurant, and I looked at her, and I haven't seen her probably for um, 30 years. 
she pretty much disappeared, you know, her, her being, her essence, her feeling essence. And I looked at her and I just started crying and I'm like, Faith, you're back. And she was like, yes, <laughs> I'm back. And she really knew it and she just loved it. And um, I just have so much faith in that, you know, for all of us. It's like, you know, I see it in each one of you in the groups. It's like, wherever we really disconnected from ourselves, and some of us are so good at hiding it, or some of us are so good at hiding it, we don't even know it, you know. <laughs> but we know when we're here and when we're not. Um, and the metta practice makes this glaringly visible. Glaringly visible. You can hide a lot more from this in the Vipassana practice, that's the gift of the loving-kindness practice for our culture. It's going to heal our culture. I have great faith in this because it really helps us be melted enough and soft enough to really genuinely be vulnerable and connect. And a culture can't heal itself if, if we're disconnected. And, you know, you, you see it. There's this, uh, just renaissance happening in the culture around mindfulness. It's a, it's a, a household word. It might not mean the same thing we mean. You know, it's like, um, the word is being thrown around as sort of a general, general casual awareness. It might not mean to some people um, insight into Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. <laughs> you know, it's like it might not. Ha- it might just have the sense of paying attention on purpose. Good enough. Yeah, I need that most of the time. Just paying attention on purpose, keeping it simple. There's a description in the text of um, something that Greg brought up last night, which is um, one of the benefits of loving kindness is that it it protects us uh, from poison and weapons and what? Poison and weapons and fire won't harm us. You know, that is um, somewhat of an old-fashioned description. But what it what is meant by that is that like when that story happened where the mother the mother cow um, was able to protect her baby calf from a spear, that the meaning of it is that the purity of the love, the purity of the love that the mother cow has for the baby cow protects it. And it's like that's how we need to understand the loving kindness practice, that it's the purity of the love that we can have for anything that's happening. So, so it's the purity of love that we have for our loneliness. It's the purity of love that we have for our wisdom, for, for the person next to your, you sadness. Or the pure, it's any time there's that purity of love that it's protective and healing and will lead 
it like opens up the possibility of the deepest liberation because we're in, we are able to renounce aversion. And we truly are able to renounce attachment because we don't need them. We literally don't need the control. We can be with things as they are because we're protected by the love. You know, it's such a it's such a, a thing to rejoice in when we get it. I think that's enough. Let's see. Yeah, and on the on the deepest level I think that because each moment is new that's the truth. Each moment is changing. Each moment is new. You know, that part of what's awesomely wonderful and awesomely challenging is that because each moment is new, that each moment is truly unknown. You know, the appearance of whatever is about to happen. It's like being on the lip of that waterfall, on the top of the waterfall and dropping. Dropping letting yourself let go and drop over the lip of the waterfall, really letting go. Um, that, that is really the only thing we can do. We drop into the unknown every moment, every moment, every moment. It's always new. You know, this is, this is immensely liberating and immensely challenging. And so anything else that's happening besides that connection with the unknown and then the next moment of connecting with the unknown and the next moment of connecting with the unknown. Anything else is an understandable defense against the uncertainty. It's, it's aversion and attachment and all the little ways that you know, we uniquely defend ourselves against this unknown um, are coping mechanisms for our anxiety around change. So it's really important to love the anxiety because that's our ticket into freedom. It's our ticket into love, liberation. And we need all the help we can get. You know, we need all the mindfulness, loving kindness we can get in this process and all the um, support that we can give each other. It's like uh, we're all on the same ship here. The more you understand yourself, the more you'll understand others. The more you have compassion for yourself, the more you'll have compassion for others. So um, may our practice bring us joy, bring us warmth, bring us peace, and bring us home. Let's sit for a minute.
the human birth is considered an incredibly rare and precious opportunity to practice the most important realm of existence to practice. Life is short. It's very rare to have this time to practice. It's very rare to have this momentum behind us, so many days behind us of practice. So I, I just really encourage you to, with all the kindness in your heart, to keep doing the best you can. to chant at nine.